reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 11, reading verses 7 to 10. I invite your reverent attention to the public reading of God's holy word here in Romans 11. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The uh, worldwide uh, communion that professes to believe in Christ, of course, is a, a vast uh, number of churches and individuals and families. But it is not divided in the sense of different traditions and rituals, as we so often think. We think, well, there's the Orthodox, there's Roman Catholics, there's Protestants, there's, we go on and on with all these divisions. They're not divided in that way, but into true and false. Into a remnant, in Paul's words, and all the rest. Think about that. Paul has simply the simplest of all divisions, the church. A remnant and all the rest. A true church and all the rest. Or we could say a visible community and an invisible one composed only of God's elect. Romans 11.5 Present time, there is a remnant according to God's gracious choice. That's God's division of the church a remnant, and all the rest. Brought home to me this week, I was driving out to Midwest City, and I forget which street I was on. I'm just happy I didn't get to Arkansas. But nonetheless, um, drove by a church, and it was named the Remnant Church. And I had to smile because I, I understand deeply the sentiment. We all want to be numbered among the remnant because that's God's division. Uh, but there is the reminder that it's not four walls. It's not these walls. It's the way God divides it, the true and the false of the elect and all the rest. And Paul brings that point to us this morning in our text because he warns the visible community that their, their faith is spiritually ruinous and a false hope. Their faith is going to ruin them and give them a false sense of security. The context is the visible community of the people of God from which Paul has come from, namely uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, they profess to believe in God. They profess to belong to God. They were zealous for His commandments, and on and on we could list of various defining aspects. Uh, but God has rejected all of them but a remnant. 
Last week, he rejected all, if you will, but 7,000 who had not committed idolatry. And he's reminding of the uh, visible community of physical Israel, or ethnic Israel, if you will, that the rejection is not total, it's not final, but the totality and finality is, of course, entirely the way of God in Christ. You can have all your other definitions, all your other adjectives and perhaps adverbs, but it's God's definition, and it's defined by the elect who believe in Jesus Christ. Everyone outside of that needs to understand the warning that now Paul brings to his countrymen. The first in verse 7 is that the non-elect do not obtain salvation, but are hardened. So it's not just a trifle. It's not just, well, any, any church. Again, uh, Paul is giving us a very stout warning, particular to his countrymen, but the application is to the church at large. Namely, that the non-elect do not obtain salvation or hardened. Let's uh, read the text again. What then, that which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. We don't think in those terms, but that's the word of God. The rest were hardened. Terrifying concept. And therefore, this is a warning passage. The Scriptures are filled with warning passages. Now, Paul here is giving us a conclusion about the doctrine of the remnant. The immediate application again is to Israel, but secondarily, the church. Even to Grace Bible Church, where we are this morning. The visible community of faith seeks God, defined as that which they use or do to make themselves acceptable to God. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. That's what most every religion is doing. Many in the Christian community are doing that, pursuing a righteousness of their own to which they can never arrive because of God's total perfections. Paul gives us the end result. Go back to Romans chapter 11, verse 7. They did not obtain it. As hard as they tried, as fast as they believed that they were running, in all of the vestments of their churchmen, Paul is decisive. They did not obtain it. So who does obtain it? Again, second half of verse 7. But those who were chosen obtained it. The elect obtained it. And the rest are hardened. So of the entire community of churches that profess to believe in Christ, everything outside of that is, of course, already under judgment. But even the visible community, churches, the chosen, obtain it, the rest are hardened. Uh, 
the verb harden comes uh, from the word for rock. Respecting Israel, that's the primary application of our text this morning. It's probably specifically a reference to them because what do you make an idol out of? A rock. Paul is saying, well, you've, you want to be like a rock? God's just simply going to harden you so you'll truly be rocks. Israel thought that their traditions would save them. In reality, their transition, their traditions were transforming them and ruining them. Jesus gives an illustration of this uh, to us in uh, Mark, uh, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 and verse 8. He says of them that you've neglected the commandments of God, and yet you hold to the traditions of men. In other words, they had established their own traditions within their faith. They're holding to that, but they neglect the commandments of God. Traditions really had become their idol. They'd become to worship their traditions, if you will, their ritual. And it's ruining them. Application to us as Christians today, sometimes we, uh, we think, well, like any sailor, if a storm is coming, we flee to a port. So any port in a storm. Who cares what the name on the church is? Does it make any difference? Just any port. Anywhere I go, I'll be safe there. Paul is saying, uh, you might want to be careful. It might be a dangerous place. The right port for the storm, the storm of the judgment of God, is Christ. Everyone outside of that will face the judgment of God. Christ and the elect. And that's how Paul and God really define the remnant. They're the elect who believe in Christ. Hold to Christ. Follow Christ. Persevere in Christ. All the rest are hardened. So that's Paul's fact about the true remnant. Let's look at the biblical proof of that in the following verses. Verse 8, Paul warns them that false religion is spiritually ruinous because it's transformational. He confirms this with a citation. Uh, in your English Bible, you should see that that is a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 10. I simply want to go back and read uh, the New American Standard uh, citation uh, of that verse in the 29th chapter, the book of Deuteronomy in the 10th verse. Deuteronomy 29, verse 10. Because that's what Paul is using. Pardon me. I don't mean Deuteronomy. I mean the prophet Isaiah. Forgive me. Isaiah 29. The context of Isaiah 29 is a time of incredible spiritual danger to the nation of Israel. And the danger is marked by the fact that they have become spiritually lethargic in their faith and incredibly confused. And Isaiah is going to tell them 
why that is. Isaiah 29, again, verse 10. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. So they're under judgment. And God has turned them over to falsehood. That's why any port in a storm uh, may be a place of danger. In this case, uh, Israel, in the days of the prophet Isaiah, had been spiritually ruined. Uh, and Isaiah tells us why. Their idolatry has ruined them and God has rejected them. Uh, in Paul's citation of that text, quoting Isaiah, Paul said, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So he's bringing the prophet Isaiah and that judgment into his very own day, meaning that the rejection of God in the days of the prophet Isaiah is still occurring in Paul's day. Because God has poured over them or given them over to a spirit of stupor. I want to pay particular attention to this, uh, to the subject here in the verb. God gave them over. We've seen that before, have we not? Romans chapter 1, with respect to the Gentile community and their immorality. If you will, that was their idol. That's an idol in America today. Immorality. What does Paul say? He not only says it once, he says it three times. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, and God gave them over. Verse 26, and God gave them over. And verse 28, and God gave them over. Think of Psalm 2. People are saying, you know what? I don't have to give any attention to the commandments of God. I can live my way however I want to live it. I can follow whatever pursuit I want to follow. In fact, I can define my own gender. That's God's judgment. God has given them over to more intense wickedness and sinfulness and rebellion. And it's spiritually destroying them. They think they're free, but they're not. They think they're liberated, but they're really enshackled by their passions and the judgment of God who has given them over. In the case of Isaiah, in the case of the Apostle Paul, a spirit of drunkenness. English, chapter 11, verse 8 is stupor, but put it perhaps more precisely, is drunkenness. And going back to Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 9. Be delayed in wait, blind yourselves and be blind. It's a point people were saying, well, we have plenty of time. We don't need to respond to God. There's lots of time left in our lives. The prophet says, okay, keep waiting. It's a sign of judgment. Blind yourselves and be blind. Then what does Isaiah say? They became drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. What are they staggering from? The deception of false teachers. 
if you will, bad theology, trusting falsehood and deception from false prophets and false teachers. So be careful with this idea of any port in the storm. Because in some cases, the church has been invaded, just like Israel of old had been invaded, with deception and false teachers. And it gets the people drunk on their bad theology. Their idolatry has spiritually dulled them and made them insensitive uh, to uh, the Word of God so that they are unable to respond uh, to the words of the prophet. Uh, Isaiah even, if you will, is more pointed in the same chapter, Isaiah 29 and verse 13, Then the Lord said, Because His people draw near with their words and honor Me with their service, but they remove their hearts far from Me, and their reverence for Me consists of tradition learned by rote. Well, Pastor, I've got the catechism down. Don't worry. Uh, I know when to genuflect and uh, when to do this and when to do that. Uh, I've got all all of uh, the ritual down. What the prophet Isaiah is saying, you got it down, but God doesn't have your heart. And that's their danger. And their hearts are being ruined in their idol worship. In fact, the illusion here, as you know, is to the commissioning of uh, the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6 where God says, Isaiah, go uh, go and blind them. Uh, go stop up their ears and smear over their eyes so they cannot see. What? Surely that can't be. Read Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9 and 10. God commissioned the prophet. It's a judicial hardening based on their idolatry. Essentially, God is saying, you want to worship idols? I'm going to make you like them. Greatest text on that is uh, the Psalter, Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them will be made like them. One of the best commentaries on this is contemporary American theologian Greg Beale. But think about it. Idols have eyes, but they don't see. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot hear. The psalmist is saying those who worship them will become like them. The reality is that when you become an idolater, you become like the idol that you serve. When you give yourself to passions, you become passionate. And it's an evidence that you're under God's judgment now. And it's ruining you and destroying you. Because God judicially rejects and judges idolatry instantaneously. And it's transformational and ruinous. And that's where Israel is. And so Isaiah is to judicially destroy their ability to believe and repent to become like the idols that they serve. Be very careful about what you serve. More pointedly, who you serve. A reminder of this text is the remnant, the true remnant, 
the remnant that belongs to the living God, is defined by God's election and believing in Jesus Christ, following Christ, obeying Christ, persevering in Christ. The traditions and syncretism of Israel has ruined them. I suspect the traditions and syncretism of many Christians and churches are said to say ruining them because they're not based biblically in Scripture. And their God becomes their traditions. They become adept at them, but spiritually ruinous. In Isaiah 6, the prophet is the divine agent. Jesus quotes the uh, call of the prophet John chapter 12, meaning that now Christ becomes the agent of ruin. It's a terrifying text. We don't like to hear warning passages. We want the preacher to say, everything's okay, keep on doing what you're doing, not to worry. God is doing otherwise in His Word. In His grace, He warns that we examine our hearts. We purify our faith in Jesus Christ, our only Redeemer. John chapter 12. End of our Savior's public ministry. And yet there's a very small remnant. Uh, why why is the remnant so small? John says that the word of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He's blinded their eyes, stopped up their ears, and hardened their hearts. Hardened their hearts. If you will, made their hearts fat. Commission of the prophet Isaiah. Now, it's being put into effect by Jesus in his day as the answers to why so few believed. Terrifying. And yet, it's the word of the Lord that comes to you and me to purify our hearts for a living faith in the living Savior, to follow, to keep, and to preserve, and to persevere in Him. That's definitive as to who the true remnant is. Judicial hardening in Isaiah's day, days of Jesus, days of Paul, still in effect today to remind us God is gracious to warn. And we need His Spirit, of course, to heed. There's an illustration of this in John chapter 3. A religious superstar by the name of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus with his ceremonies of law works. What should Jesus say to him? You must be born of the water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom. It's a figure of speech. Uh, technical word for it is hendiades. It's a two for one, meaning the Spirit from heaven must affect spiritual cleansing for you to enter the kingdom of God. To enter, one must be born again of God by His supernatural grace to change the heart not your vestments, not your ritual, but your heart. 
and all the liturgy baptisms, washing robes, financial gifts, and acts of human atonement are totally unable to save. In fact, they were, if you understand this warning, they can be spiritually ruinous and transformational. The God alone saves. He alone saves his remnant, defined by those who believe in Christ. And supplanting God's way with any other way as an act that will lead you into incredible judgment. Illustration of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, respecting ethnic Israel. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because it is removed in Christ. You see, we all used to be there. God removed it in Christ. That's the true remnant. Verses 9 to 10, the warning is that false religion changes one and holds them until the last judgment. They're under judgment now, but they're caught and held there for the final judgment, verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 11. Warning passages. We don't think in those terms. We must. Not because of this pulpit, but because of the Word of God. Here Paul turns uh, to David and he cites from Psalm 69. I want to read again from the New American Standard, uh, Old Testament text. Paul is quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but I'm going to simply read to you uh, from my Old Testament, Psalm 69, in verses 22 and 23, because they're terrifying words, words of warning. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Paul changes the word order, changes the concept of terror, their loins shaking from the last judgment, to a heavy burden. Context is a prayer of imprecation whereby David is praying for the ruin of his enemies. In particular, some within the religious community who are persecuting him. But the key to the text are the figures of speech. The table to me is an altar where men took their peace offerings in worship. The Targum has sacrificial feasts. In other words, they were satisfied or at ease in their physical religion. Well, I've made my sacrifices. What me worry? No, no. God's after the heart. In reality, their physical religion snares them like a trap. 
the trap closes to hold them until the final judgment. They become so invested in it that they remain in it. Their religion transformed them so that their eyes are darkened and because of blindness they cannot see the danger nor can they see the beauty of Christ alone. Beautiful Savior. Beautiful Redeemer. Because their religion has transformed them so their eyes grow dim and they cannot see. It's become a trap to hold them because they think they're safe. Well, I've paid my vows. I've made my sacrifices. I, I wrote my check to the church. I'm okay. But they reserve their hearts for themselves. And therefore, they're in a snare. The snare of false religion is transforming them. Paul changes uh, David's terror to bend their backs. Um, it's, it's really much more sinister. Bend their backs forever. Take this as the burden of religion. A couple of texts that illuminate this for me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden from what? All of the traditions of the elders that were heaping upon them. Jesus says, you're heavy laden. Come to me. What follows? You know the text, don't you? And I will give you rest, which only he can do. Gives us rest from 10,000 rules and regulations because true peace is only in him. I will give you rest. Point of the remnant, they're the elect of God who believe in Jesus, who find their rest in him. Matthew 23, 4, and they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Just the way religion is. The more they do, the more they feel they need to do. This is, to me, the greatest illustration of all this, to me, in a personal sense from church history, is Martin Luther. He was nagged, as you know, by the terrifying question, have I done enough? And when you're seeking to save yourself, the answer is always no, because you cannot save yourself. There's not enough religious rules in all the world or rituals in all of the world that you could ever meet the infinite demands of a perfect, holy, righteous God. Therefore, someone must do it for us. And that someone is Christ, our Redeemer. Believing, following, hoping, persevering in Him. Point of religion. Our attempts to find God. 
as good as they may appear, they will always come to a terrifying end. In the days of Jesus, he said, you're doing these things to please men rather than please God. So human works do not avail, regardless of the adjective or name attached to them. It's the heart, and only Jesus changes hearts by the power of the Spirit, makes men new. And so their superstitions ensnare them into thinking that they are safe and secure and done enough. My church gives me a list and I just simply check it off. It's the heart, ladies and gentlemen. It's always the heart. And you cannot do enough. And you are not safe anywhere except in Christ. Only place of safety. No other place. Illustration of this in New Testament. Revelation chapter 3. Church at Laodicea. Jesus says to them, because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I solve to anoint your eyes that you may see. In other words, flee to him and he will clothe you in white garments and he will open your eyes, unstop your ears, cover your nakedness with the works of his righteousness. They thought they were safe. They were in incredible danger. And what is Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18? But a warning passage to the church to flee to him, find their safety in him and him alone. Because there's no safety from Christ, only in Christ. And all who trust in ceremonies and traditions and ritual instead of God's provision are in danger. He defines his elect by those who believe in Christ. And he defines in the New Testament what it means to believe in Christ. And certainly it encompasses hearing his voice and following him. Typically you think, well, I don't, I don't, I don't need to do that. I got my own definition. No, there's only the divine definition that points us to the Savior. And so, point of the heart is the gospel is the only hope because it's God's provision. It's a place of safety. Let me give you an Old Testament, New Testament illustration of this. Exodus chapter 12. It's the eve of Passover context of Exodus 12. Verse 22. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. 
And so they mark the door with the blood of the Lamb. And the angel of death passes over that house. Any house without those markings, there's death. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. The psalmist knows what hyssop is because he knows Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. And that theology floods into Psalm 51. Now let's go to John. John chapter 19. Take away any speculation whatsoever as to the origin of the blood. John chapter 19, verse 29. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. The Passover lamb is pointing to Christ. The shed blood of the Passover lamb pointing to Christ. David points us to Christ. Christ himself reminds us. It's the cleansing power of his blood that avails before the righteousness of heaven and the demands of God the Father to make us clean, to make us as white as snow to remove our sins from us so far as the east is from the west, so that we can stand as the sons of the living God, cleansing power of Jesus Christ. In grace, the eternal provides acceptance in and by the Son alone. It's definitive of the elect. It's entirely a divine work because only the Son of God could accomplish it. No other work will do. And God accepts the work of His Son as our substitute. We receive the benefits by faith alone, by believing and trusting in the work of the Son alone to avail for us as our substitute. That His righteousness is all that heaven accepts for forgiveness human accomplishments and human acts of atonement do not avail. They're insufficient. They'll never work. In fact, if you understand the warning passages of our text this morning, they become spiritually ruinous and hold us like a trap to the final judgment. So why would you go anywhere else but Christ? And this This defines the true remnant. Not traditions and works, but trusting Christ as all of the elect certainly will and certainly do. If you're not a Christian, Christ is the answer. Flee to Him. You cannot save yourself. This church cannot save you. No one in this church can save you. But Christ saves. And he will save all of his own. And none will be lost. 
My question to you is, is why would you go anywhere else and to anyone else but to Him? And may God bless each of us with a purified faith to believe, to hope, to trust, to follow, to preserve, to persevere. In the words of Christ, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish.